And welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 130, recorded on August 12th, 2019. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on iTunes right now, please take a minute to leave us a review. This will help others find the show and grow the community. Today we will talk about the mega round raised by Klarna, about Carwow and Daimler, about e-scooter fishing, Molen Geek, and much more. We have also prepared an interview with Klarna's co-founder and CEO Sebastian Semyatkovsky. Here is a teaser of what's coming. So, like our promise to people is like, we're gonna challenge you. Like we're gonna challenge you really hard. You're gonna get into really tough situations. You're gonna be challenged. And I'm pretty sure that the only way to disrupt uh, airfare prices are either by screwing customers or by screwing employees or both. I don't know if 58 e-scooters in three hours is a high or a low number, but how much is a submerged scooter worth? I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today as usual by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. It's going really well today, and it's really exciting news about Klarna. But before we get a chance to talk about that, I wanted to mention another deal from a European unicorn, which this might be the biggest deal of the week, but we can't be sure. So Germany's Flix Mobility just announced they've extended their Series F funding at a $2 billion dollar valuation. And sh they shared that they're going to add cars to their bus and train network. And they also have airplanes in the works. So in July, the company announced they raised around 500 million euros, but have since added more to this amount. The company has not disclosed how much more, but the added investment is, quote, substantial. So it's pretty interesting for sure. They're not going to be much um, more forthcoming with details. But if we find out how much more the deal is worth, we'll let you know about it. So for now, we will say that Klarna is the biggest deal of the week and uh, uh, Flexibility is the most substantial one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Do you actually believe that they would uh, go into, into like airplanes? Well, they've definitely talked about it and they're looking to put this funding into their expansion into Latin America and into Asia. So they're really trying to cover um, all of the world here. And they're, the, but the next main thing on the, on the calendar is, is Flix car, um, which will be a car sharing. It looks to be a car sharing service. Yeah, so they definitely need to compete with Blablacar a lot, at least in Europe right now. But as for as for airlines, though, I mean, I'm not a specialist at all uh, in this, but I would generally expect that a, bu a business of an airline is so different from everything else, and uh, they are doing so good with uh, everything else uh, that they are doing. I like why why even why even try at this moment? Well, they were definitely brave enough to get into the train and rail. Oh, business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they really kind of approach things a bit differently. And I could imagine them going into the air industry um, kind of in the same way that they've been disrupting everything else. 
I mean, so far they have disrupted uh, uh, the transportation also in terms of prices. And I'm pretty sure that the only way to disrupt uh, air airfare prices are either by, by screwing customers or by screwing employees or both. So I'm afraid it might not end that well. Anyway, I'm uh, very curious to see what uh, what happens. Well, we'll definitely keep following that for everyone on the podcast. Now, getting back to the biggest uh, disclosed funding round uh, from last week, uh, that would be the one raised by Klarna, uh, which is the payments and the banking service provider from Sweden. Uh, the company raised 460 million US dollars at a post money valuation of 5.5 billion US dollars. So, in the announcement, Klarna also pointed out that this deal makes it the largest private fintech company in Europe. And it seems like this award changes hands almost every month now. So, let's see if there will be more contenders uh, later this year. But back to Klarna again, uh, the company is now 14 years old and technically Klarna is a bank. It got its full banking license in 2017. However, uh, it doesn't really act or behave uh, like, uh, like a bank and its uh, core service uh, for online merchants is to handle all the customer payments and for the customers, it offers uh, financing options like uh, paying for their purchase later or in installments and stuff like this. So paying within 30 days, I think, or in three installments is actually interest-free, uh, which seems like a decent offering that uh, competes with traditional credit cards uh, for uh, for customers. And uh, I think uh, about a year or probably even more ago, uh, Klarna sort of pivoted from uh, being a uh, merchant-focused company into a B2C company. And this is something that uh, we will hear more about in an interview that we're going to run in a bit. Uh, but uh, again, about the funding round, uh, this is the second uh, round for Klarna this year. And uh, very much like the other large fintech companies in Europe, Klarna is going to use the money to conquer the United States. And uh, Klarna says that it serves already a total of 60 million consumers and 130,000 merchant partners, of which 3,000 are in the US. And now Klarna wants to grow this number significantly. Uh, and now I think it is a good time to play an interview with the Klarna's founder, Sebastian Semyotkovsky, uh, which was recorded by Robin Wouters almost a year ago at the Tech Open Air conference in Berlin. Uh, let's listen together because Sebastian has a lot of fascinating stories and uh, things to tell, and we can learn a bunch about how the company was founded and what kind of ground it has covered so far. <laughs> Welcome to Berlin. Thank you. You actually spent quite some time here because Klarna has a really, really big office here. You just told me, right? How many yeah, people? we've been growing here a lot. I think we're like two, three hundred people or something. So quite a lot. Uh, we were like zero just one or two years ago. So great. Well, I always assume people know Klarna, but for those in the audience who might not, uh, give us some uh, some background. Sure. I mean. When we started a company, it was basically just a payments company. But today, what we're really passionate about is um, is the whole banking and retail banking, and um, and how we can really like save humanity from all those boring things that banking means, like all those mundane tasks of managing your bills and managing your shopping and all that stuff. How we can just make it go away. That's a great mission to have. Yeah. So uh, just to go back, because I, I think uh, our uh, the person who introduced you was uh, saying that you were founded over a decade ago, but it's it's actually it's almost 15 years now, right? So uh, getting there. Um, so you're more of a, a scale-up, mature company. Can you give us some basic facts, like how many people you employ, revenue, etc.? Sure. So we are 
kind of in a fun phase right now. We're about 2,000 people, but we just announced that we're hiring about 1,000. So we're going to grow up to 3,000. And that's really crazy. It's not like a purpose in itself, really, to be a lot of people, obviously. But the thing is, right now, there's just so many amazing opportunities in how we can change the whole banking industry that we felt that this is the time to just go aggressive and like get a lot of yeah. things out there and make a lot of things happen. So it's really exciting. We have about 60 million users worldwide. And, uh, you know, we're about revenue wise, we're close to half a billion dollars. Right. The users that you mentioned, those 60 million, do they know Klarna as a brand? Or is it more that you go through the merchants and they don't necessarily know that you're, they're using Klarna? Yeah, I think a lot of them know. But, but, but we also think about relationships a little bit different than banks you do, because banks' relationships were always like, you were supposed to go into a bank office and then you went to, through a very long process and then eventually the banker said, yes, congratulations, you may be a customer in my bank. And we kind of think about it very differently. So we just offer a number of different services for consumers that they can try out. Most often they start with using it as one of the merchants. Could be an ASOS, could be a IKEA, could be, you know, big and small merchants. And then hopefully they like what they get and then they start using us more and more for more things. Right. So it um, varies. So the, the title of this session is from a local underdog and I was uh, doing some preparation uh, for this interview and I, I read that when, when you were in the Stockholm School of Entrepreneurship, you actually entered sort of an awards thing. Uh, with the concept that eventually became Klarna, and you didn't even make the cut, like it was one of the last uh, to get ranked, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun story, because we were like, I mean, we started this thing at the Stockholm School of Economics, and it's partly funded by um, by companies. So when we just started, they had this Dragon's Den set up, and they brought in like the most prominent Swedish business figures, which was like the founder of H&M and, uh, you know, the local CEO of McKinsey and the, the Wallenberg family who kind of own like half of Sweden. They own all the banks and everything. And they were supposed to like judge a couple of uh, business pitches. And we went on stage and made a pitch and uh, they basically told us like, this is never going to work. Forget about it. Uh, the banks are going to do this. So, you know, I can laugh about it today, obviously, but being 23 years old back then as a student, it's not one of those things that uh, makes you super excited. But what was really cool that when I came down from the stage, uh, there was an older gentleman who approached me and he said, like, like, screw those old guys. Don't care about what they say. The banks are never going to realize what happened to them. Um, so I think that was pretty cool. But, um, and then obviously you didn't. So you started the company with uh, two friends of yours who were also uh, attending the school. How do you remember the early days? I mean, the early days was obviously a lot of fun. I remember when they were like as warm as this today, we didn't have any air conditioning. So there's kind of a funny photo where we sit in our underwear working because it was so hot. And um, we always like prided ourselves about having great customer service. So we obviously didn't want to close customer service during lunch hours. So we would use go out in the park, bring some pizzas and and um, and eat. And remember, this was like before Wi-Fi and uh, phones almost. So whenever the phone called and we knew it was customer service, we had to run all the way back to the office to kind of, uh, to answer the question of the customer. And, uh, and many times it's like, oh, sorry, you, uh, you got connected. Can you please redial? Cause it took us about 10 minutes to run back. Right. But, um, uh, so no, I think it was amazing. I think like we did probably all the mistakes that you can do. I mean, one of our biggest mistakes was that we were not engineers. So we had no clue what we were actually building and how to build it. And uh, I really, really, uh, I'm, I'm happy in life. I didn't choose to become an engineer in, when I was young. But also just in general, I mean, it was, we didn't, I think also things have changed a little bit, right? I mean, back in those days in Europe, there really weren't any like startups or success stories. 
And the really only one that we could look to was uh, Niklas Sundström and Skype. That was like the only European thing that had actually become like a global phenomenon. And, uh, and that was a massive inspiration to us. But there was no support. We couldn't talk to any other entrepreneurs that were successful, had did something similar. And I, I do actually think we got a lot of poor advice in the first couple of years as well as a consequence of that. I think it's really cool now as you look to Berlin and Stockholm and these places that like there's so many now successful companies that there's more like know-how available and people can talk to each other and share ideas and thoughts much more. Do you actively try to you know, engage with the community to give advice and even angel investments and whatnot? I do, but I have become, since I got kids, I'm a little bit more careful with my time. But um, I, I do, I try to. I'm, I'm, I'm involved in something called the, like, the incubator at the school that I went to, where we also help like, a lot of companies and stuff. And I always, when entrepreneurs stumble into me, I obviously try to be available as much as I can. But at the same point of time, I'm, I'm really in love with what we do at Klarna, and I'm super passionate about it, and I really want to focus my time there. So that's my primary time spent. So now Klarna is in a position that people come to you um, to work for Klarna. Um, back in the early days, of course, you, your first hires didn't know Klarna, so you had to convince them, which is, I think, one of the biggest uh, things entrepreneurs need to learn is how to sell your company to everyone, and not just to partners and customers, but also to people that you want to recruit, right? So how do you remember those early conversations? I still feel that the best people you always find are always busy doing something else. So I think outward-reaching recruitment is always there, but... It was hard, and I think, I think that one of the hardest things as an entrepreneur is really to recognize what does good look like when you don't have a point of reference, right? So I think engineering was a good example because we were not engineers ourselves. If somebody told me this is how long it takes to code this, or this is what the architecture should look like, or this is the latest technology or whatever, like I had zero ability to make an assessment of whether that was true or not. Was this right, wrong? Let me... And I think that like, that's really the hard things, right? And I think the same go for a C, for a uh, engineer founder, right? And he was going to have some commercial guy coming in and saying, yes, this is how you're supposed to do sales. or this is how you're supposed to do marketing and so forth. I think that's really, and, and, and the only way I learned over time was that start, for example, on the engineering side, I decided to like reach out to six, seven CTOs of successful Swedish companies. And I met with them and I started discussing with them, like, tell me, like, how do I recognize what does good look like and so forth. And like being out there talking to people and trying to learn was what eventually made me at least create a, an idea of like, yes, this is how I think it should look like. And then trying to recruit and find people and match those criteria. And then eventually when you create an internal success story and say, look, this team is really moving at the right pace and they understand it and they find the right balance between you know, hacking things together while at the same time not creating you a massive legacy. Then you kind of learn and you try to iterate and copy that. So, And how do you structure recruitment today? Because obviously when you're a 2,000-person company, you can't do it all yourself. Um, and there's a war on talents. I mean, there is uh, not just in Berlin, but also in Stockholm and beyond. Um, so how do you approach this now? It's funny you say that because actually we last year we started realizing that we really wanted to scale up because we see these amazing opportunities in, in retail banking and how we can change that industry. And that's when we started looking into like, okay, we need to grow and we need to grow fast. And then kind of recruitment actually became my top priority because I started thinking like, how do we actually, how do you recruit a thousand people? And because I've been in this growth phase before, you also obviously want to do it like you want to attract the right people that match your culture and that have a perfect fit and so forth. So I've spent, I've been very much involved in the details. But actually, the interesting thing with recruitment itself is like it touches everything. It touches also like 
what type of people are you looking for? Which also then comes back to what are we actually promising people? Like, why should people join Klarna, right? And I think that like in the early days, I kind of copied what everyone else was doing. So, you know, Google was having these colorful bikes and rooms with Lego in and people were telling me like, yeah, you should have 20% of creative time because that gets everyone super excited. And we tested that and like, even though we had 20% of creative time, it wasn't really like our throughput increased or people were much happier. So I think it like, what I feel much more certain about now is that like, today we think about very differently. So like our promise to people is like, we're gonna challenge you. Like we're gonna challenge you really hard. You're gonna get into really tough, tough situations. You're gonna be challenged, but we're also gonna give you a lot of trust. We're gonna give you the opportunity to own a problem end to end and deliver at it. Uh, we're gonna treat you as adults, tell you the truth of how we think about things, not try to skim things over. We can be honest and transparent. So like, I think that like, but doing this recruitment thing also like reminded me again of just how important it is. Like, what is our culture about and how can we attract people and what, and how can we send that message to people that wanna join us? And speaking of culture, how difficult is it to maintain like this startup driven culture that you had in the beginning, you know, 13 years later, how do you communicate this to 2000, you know, in the future, 3000 people? Yeah, I think, look, I've struggled with that for many, many years. I think it's so, so hard, but I feel in the last one or two years that we have figured it out or at least improved massively on it. But I think again, it, one of the things that at least we did wrong and I, I see, some companies like Amazon and Google are also doing the same now, but we ended up in fairly classical structures where like there was a marketing department and a finance department and so forth. And it wasn't until we like rethought this whole thing and said, look, in the end, we want to be small units, like Amazon talks about the two pizza team rule, eight people at max, they should own a problem and they should own it end to end. And if they need a marketeer to solve the problem, if they need an engineer, if they know, you know, a product person or whatever they need, they should have that. And we could obviously coach them and challenge them and act as an investors and challenge them on what they're doing. But in the end, they need to own their destiny and own their problem space and, and set the path. And then you actually can transform a 2000 people company into 250 startups. Right. It's doable. But I think the other thing that most people miss actually, and that I haven't heard any other people talk about is when we kind of promote or give people like responsibilities, we think about experience, we think about background. And I feel like the only thing that matters is passion. Like the only thing that matters is passion. So whoever is leading that startup, we call it the accountable lead. It's like the small CEO of that startup. The only thing that matters is, is does, does that person have passion for the problem space? Right. And so, What's really like tough for me as a CEO is that like I might have all these ideas of things that I would like Klarna to do. But if, if I force somebody to do it that doesn't have the passion for it, like that's just going to be a massive failure. So the only way in which I can actually find somebody to invest in and go after this problem space is by finding somebody who's as passionate about it as I might be or somebody else might be. And then as well, obviously have people within the organization come up with their areas and their own ideas of that. So I think that one of the most underserved idea and in companies is like, let people do what they're passionate about. Right. That's the only thing. So, and that hard thing, obviously in a, in a bank is that there's some things like compliance that there isn't a massive amount of people that are very passionate about. So this makes it even harder to find them. Right. I think that's like an easier thing. If you're a, I don't know, like a Bitcoin company, you're going to find a lot of people, you know, passionate about Bitcoin but passionate about compliance, that's harder. So that puts even more pressure on your recruitment. Right. 
so let's go back to the history a little bit. I think uh, 2010 was a particularly crucial year for, for uh, Klarna because you, then you were still in Nordics. Uh, first expansion to Germany, an acquisition. You took investment from Sequoia Capital. And I think once you raise investment from a VC firm like that, sort of the clock starts ticking. Like at some point you have to provide a return. Um, you've raised a lot more funding since, strategic investments from Visa, but also from some of the biggest names in the VC world. So like, well, we're eight years later from that first investment. Like at what point do you think there's going to be some type of uh, an exit? Well, if I really hope maybe when I'm dead, hmm. um, because like, I really love what we're doing and I don't right now like I'm also a pragmatic person and I do feel I have a responsibility against my shareholder base <laughs> so if somebody comes and does something crazy I might have to say yes but that's more of a physical responsibility type of thing but if you ask me personally like I love what we're doing I can continue doing it forever like there is just so much to do and and I think actually it's funny you mentioned that about we did an acquisition in Germany I think that's one of the coolest things that Klana did because we bought a company called Support that's based around the Munich area. And actually Support, a German company and the founders behind it, they're the reason we have PSD2. They're the reason we have open banking and this massive change. And when we bought that company and merged with them, PSD2 wasn't yet decided on. So it was a massive risk to us. It's probably the scariest decision I ever had to take because I was signing a check for 140 million euros. And if PSD2 would have gone the wrong way, it would have been all gone. So that was really scary, scary like shit, to be honest. But I think what's really cool is that we supported that company and they've been driving the legislation change that's now opening up the whole European banking industry. And, and what I feel so cool in this is that like banks are making so massive profits. If you take Sweden as an example, the Swedish banks are making on average a thousand euros in profit per citizen in Sweden. Like that's an extra tax. And like, if we can just make that half and give that money back to the people and let them do something meaningful for it instead, whether they want to go travel or, you know, hang out with their friends or whatever their interest is, like, that's a really exciting thing to do. So, but, and that's a big mission. And, and I think that what's been cool with a company like Sequoia is that they really buy into those big visions. I think Sequoia is one of few VCs that really don't, they don't really care. Like they want it to be you know, somebody that's trying to be the next Google, the next Amazon will be something really big in their sector. And then they have a, a luxury because of their success to actually say, look, go on for another five years right. if you have the opportunity to do something like that. And, and I've been trying now to get investors on board that have a similar mindset and can really look long term. Yeah. Uh, so more more about impact and return on investment. Though, yeah, yeah exactly. And I, mean, I, think, I think it is. And I think people don't even recognize you take Sequoia as an example. 80% of the money that Sequoia has in their funds are schools. It's schools. So whenever we're successful and we give Sequoia a return, all of that goes back to research, education, like really great causes. That's, <laughs> That's an amazing thing to be able to do. So not only are we like creating value and being able to disrupt the industry, but the, the profits we're generating are also good for other benefits. So I, I feel very fortunate to be in that situation. I think it's a very luxurious situation to be in that sense. Yeah, I agree. Very cool. Um, so products and services wise, when, when we sat down, I think it was four years ago uh, in Stockholm, I think it was your previous HQ, um, you were still very much a B2B company, yes. uh, focused on merchant sites. Uh, since then, you've kind of shifted to a B2C model, which is a lot more difficult. It's a lot more people you have to build trust. Um, there's, there's a lot more involved than just selling to merchants, right? So 
How did that change sort of uh, the internal processes within Klarna? How did, how did it change the company? I think it has changed, but I think we're still in that process to some degree. It, it's kind of funny, you know, it's like four years ago, we didn't even have like a consumer port online portal. So if customers had questions, they had to call us. <laughs> and, uh, and today we have, you know, uh, actually our German app is bigger than our Swedish, like in number of, there's a couple of million users of the German app, if I remember correctly. So it's like, it's really transformed a lot in that sense. But also to your point, obviously it's, it transforms the whole company. So one thing that we had to do is we had to reimagine our brand because, uh, we felt also that like, most of the companies in banking or payments or whatever, they all look the same. It's all very boring and not exciting. And we wanted to create a different flavor. And that was when you kind of end up and suddenly we came out with a smooth and we created this TV advertising that I recommend for people to see. Uh, they're like a fish going down a slider and really crazy stuff. And when we did that, obviously our merchants reacted a little bit like, what the hell are you doing? But I think by now we've proven that like, the consumers really think about these things differently. You can create trust by having people in suits, or you can create trust by building great products that people like and want to use and create value for them. There is really an opportunity to change that. But obviously that creates a, somewhat of a conflict with your merchants. And I think trying to balance that is what is actually really exciting. I think, I mean, creativity to me is about solving a problems with many constraints in a way that nobody else has solved before. So you satisfy the constraints in a better way than anyone else before, or in a new way that nobody thought of. This is exactly the same. I think if you look at payments today, it's either you have like the, the wallets from the US that most people in the industry don't call payment schemes. They call them extortion schemes because basically they charge merchants massive amounts and then they incentivize the consumers. Or you have the other way around who are just on the merchant side. And I think that, like, again, this creates an amazing, nice, interesting intellectual challenge. How can you build a payment system that actually is great for the consumer and for the merchant? We're both benefit, but that's also much harder to do, obviously. So I think that's exactly the kind of interesting challenges you want to face. Nice. Uh, we're going to look at some of the questions from the audience. So what's your view on your European competition? It's a good question because Adyen, of course, just IPO'd. Eisel was just acquired by PayPal for... I think 2.2 billion in cash. So, so how do you see this fintech competition in Europe? Yeah, I think, look, I love what Adin has done as a company. I think it's really, really impressive. And in many ways, I always felt that they were undervalued and underappreciated by investors. So I actually felt that like it was, I was so happy when I saw on, after the IPO when their, their value doubled because it was very fair, to be honest. Like I'm not a person who understands how you value companies. So I can't tell you whether it's fair from that perspective, <laughs> but I can tell you it was fair versus the people behind the company because they have always been underappreciated. And I think this really made people realize, wow, what a company. No, I, look, I think we as a company have chosen a very, our own, very own path. I think one of the things we really believe in is that currently there's a trend where, you know, we talk a lot about privacy, about data. And I think the misconception right now is consumers don't want to share data. And I don't think that's true. Consumers don't want to share data with companies whose sole intention is using that for their own purposes. So if you have thousands of engineers in a social media platform whose only focus is using your data in order to grab even more of your attention, looking at this screen in order to sell more ads, how are we contributing to society with that? While what we're trying to do really is how can we use your data but provide value to you. So the golden rule for us is whenever we ask you for a single piece of data, 
why are we asking for that and how are we going to provide value to you as a consumer? And the uniqueness in that is that we're the only one that we're aware of at our scale who has SKU level data. So nowadays when people open their app and see their purchases with Klarna, they do not only see merchant name and amount, they see pictures of the items they bought. Uh, they're able to return those items directly. They're able to look at similar items and open that merchant and so forth. So the richness of the experience you can provide to consumers is massive. And, and that's as a, as a unique identifier. So I think that like banking in the future is really about how do you, you know, for what reason are you asking your customers for data and what is the value that you can create to consumers? And I see few people pursuing that dream. Uh, we only have a little bit of time left, and I'll quickly do the last question. How do you spot the opportunity in retail banking since you weren't part of the industry? One yeah. Thing. Is it really that hard? I mean, I'm not part of the industry, but I'm a customer. And I get super frustrated whenever I try to do anything that has anything with banks to do. And every time I'm sitting in the evening and I'm doing my bills at home, I just feel like, oh my God, there must be something more meaningful I could do with my life than sitting here and doing this. And you know, what used to be self-service, it's not self-service, it's self-work. Like the banks basically outsourced all the works to us and improved their margins. So like, I don't think it's hard to spot the opportunity because the banks have been obsessing about themselves, not the customers. And so the only thing you really need to do is obsess about your customers and what you can do for them. And that's, that's the differentiation that you can create. If anything, I would argue it's easier to spot the opportunities if you're not part of the industry and just a customer because exactly. you see the... And I also think to some degree, it's like people always ask for like, what's the silver bullet? Well, how are people going to look to me? It's like when the iPhone came around, right? Why did we go for the iPhone? Nobody can explain to me still, what was it with the iPhone that made everyone choose it? Like it wasn't the camera. It was for sure not battery life. So it was just the love and passion for every freaking detail of how that phone worked and the improved customer experience. And I think the same iPhone moment can happen to retail banking where we can provide a service that is just in every detail better than anything that's there today. Great. Well, I wish you all the best for all the time. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome back to the podcast of uh, Tech.eu. We just listened to the interview uh, by Sebastian Semenkovsky, recorded by Robin Wouters, and we're back with more news stories and recommendations. So, Natalie, what did you want to talk about? Yeah, so I wanted to return to the mobility topic here. As last week, we learned that Daimler has invested $25 million in the UK-based automobile marketplace, CarWow. So CarWow launched in May 2013, and it's a reverse marketplace in that it purchasers identify the vehicle they want to buy and dealers receive offers from sellers. In 2016, they reportedly reached 1 million users, and their site has a lot to offer beyond just the sales space, with comprehensive reviews, release announcements, and a YouTube channel with over 2.5 million subscribers. Previous investors in CarWow include Balderton Capital, Episode 1 Ventures, Simos Investments, and Excel Partners. CarWow is an example where the process of buying a car is changing really rapidly. And thankfully, it is something that seems to be vastly changing in the consumer's favor, which is why it's no surprise that auto marketplaces are something which has received considerable investment in Europe over the last year or so. And you might recall last year's news that SoftBank invested 460 million euros into Berlin's Auto One Group, which was the largest investment deal of all in Germany last year. A few months after that, OLX Group invested $89 million into Frontier Auto, which is another auto sales marketplace from Berlin. 
And while these investments are big, investments in the used car marketplace outside of Europe show what the market could look like and really the promise that's really available in this space. Earlier this year, SoftBank's Vision Fund invested $1.5 billion in the Chinese secondhand car startup. And in the U.S., companies like Carvana and Shift have been furiously raising money and working to outcompete one another. In the UK, investors this year have enjoyed huge returns from the rising stock price of AutoTrader, the leading site used to buy and sell vehicles here. And in June, another British used car marketplace, Motorway, which is somewhat of a competitor with CarWow, raised an 11 million pound Series A round. And with this latest deal for CarWow, it's clear that this is a sector that has a lot of promise and room to grow. But another reason why this deal is particularly notable is because it is the first strategic investment CarWow has accepted, led by Daimler. And Daimler is recognizable for really reinventing the way that corporates work with startups and new technologies. The company today has seven different subunits that are dedicated to working with startups in all different sorts of aspects, from acceleration programs to strategic investing to supporting spin-off companies, something special for fintechs, and a special think tank for ideas in the automotive space. In 2016, they were one of the first German corporates to work constructively with startups by developing their own Startup Autobahn, which is today their flagship accelerator program, which is held in conjunction with Plug and Play. This latest investment is another example of Daimler's approach for how European corporates can work with startups in a collaborative and mutually beneficial manner. Especially as we're seeing more and more corporate startup studios develop, their approach really recognizes the autonomy and independence of startups to lead and innovate differently. So despite many innovations trying to encourage people to buy fewer cars, the car marketplace and auto sales landscape remains a really interesting space to watch. And it seems to be for, for the, um, the recent and upcoming future. Interesting, indeed. I have to say, I never used any of these uh, startups uh, to, to buy a car, even though I've owned two used cars by now. But uh, I always just went on the local uh, classified page, sort of. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the amount of opportunity there is in this space. So I recently bought a used car uh, about a year ago, and we just used a traditional dealership that was selling used car. Uh, so there is so much room for these startups to innovate in the sector and to acquire customers. It really is on the horizon of, of really exciting uh, opportunities available there. Yeah, for sure. I hope we will have another auto tech uh, report coming uh, this or the next year just to, uh, to see how the uh, niche is uh, developing and growing. Now, uh, moving on, uh, what we have next is the recommendation part. And uh, since you started talking about mobility, I will continue this. And I swear I was not planning to talk about e-scooters today, <laughs> but I got I got a very nice story suggestion from our listener on Twitter, and I just couldn't resist the temptation to uh, share it with everyone. So thanks a lot to Leonard Mishkind uh, or El Mishkind on uh, Twitter uh, for this story that's titled A French Startup is Using Magnetic Fishing Rods to Pull E-Scooters Out of the Sand. 
So the store is a good example, really, of how one big uh, sort of business niche gives birth to secondary ones. And in this case, thanks to the e-scooter craze in Paris, a startup called Goopy uh, was launched. And the idea is simple. Goopy takes money from e-scooter operators to fish e-scooters together with other vehicles and debris out of Seine. And uh, in May, during a three-hour fishing trip, the team uh, says it uh, pulled out 58 e-scooters. Uh, they did not uh, describe uh, like uh, how many of each uh, different uh, company um, the, they pulled out, but I guess it's uh, it's not that important, and it should be kind of uh, proportionate with the market shares of the different operators. Uh, but I have to say uh, that uh, this probably tells a lot about what Parisians think about uh, the urban mobility revolution. And uh, there is not much love, so I, I guess, uh, among some people, at least to e-scooters. But anyway, for me, this story wasn't really that surprising because uh, I've lived in Amsterdam for a few years and I saw the municipal bike fishing boats in canals many times. And it's a really fascinating uh, thing to see. They just uh, go around the canals and uh, they fish out lots and lots and lots of bicycles thrown uh, into the water. Uh, but it seems like for Paris, it's uh, only the beginning. So maybe e-scooter companies should think about adding flotation devices to their vehicles in the near future or something like airbags that would pull them up into the uh, onto the surface. Now, once again, thanks a lot to uh, Leonard Mishkent for suggesting this story. I will leave a link to it in the show notes for you to check out. And if you have a good story to suggest, talk to us on any communications channel. We are all ears, always uh, happy to hear from you. Uh, from you. Natalie, have you ever seen anyone throwing a e-scooter into a canal or a river? <laughs> I haven't, but I am not surprised that it's happening. And I don't know if 58 e-scooters in three hours is a high or a low number, but I um, am really excited that Guppy is in this space and really finds an opportunity here. But how much is a submerged scooter worth? And how are, how is this company making money? So the company makes money uh, because it takes money from uh, actual e-scooter operators and uh, the operator's interest as far as I understand, is not necessarily in uh, refurbishing these scooters, but more uh, it's more about uh, caring for the environment. Because there is only there's only so much space on the uh, in the river, so at some point it can it can become a problem uh, if too much stuff is being thrown into it. So I don't think uh, I don't think these e-scooters are going to ride again. Probably no, not. probably not. But at least it's the scooter companies that are paying um, yeah. for the cleanup and not the cities them themselves. Yeah, this is great. But I think it also says in the piece that scaling is still a little bit of a challenge. Uh, for uh, for Guppy, so uh, I do hope that they will find sort of a sustainable business model and uh, will be able to clean uh, clean the river. Now, what did you wanted to talk about, Natalie? So my recommendation is a feel good story this week that I found on Al Jazeera, <laughs> and it's an interest piece on Moling Geek, which is a tech community initiative in in the Brussels Molenbeek neighborhood that's providing a creative space and community for local young people, many of whom come from an immigrant or a refugee background. So Molenbeek was founded four years ago and the community offers free daily lessons in computer programming, web developing and social media training. And they also offer startup support. 
So in June, MullenGeek was granted $250,000 by Google to support their work as a community initiative. They've also been awarded public funding um, and really have created a very vibrant community um, in tech in a place that often you hear um, maybe not so positive stories. But MullenGeek's story is something that I find really special about tech that at its best, it can empower people to be better and to make valuable valuable change. And sometimes lost in the funding deals and the investments and the big money headlines, it's important that stories like these don't get overlooked because tech, the tech space can be so different and unique for so many people. And it, it really, sometimes we are just talking about some of the most big and most significant funding deals, but it's really a spectrum. Um, and that's what um, this story really, really reminded me. And I wanted to share with you all this week. Sure. Thanks for this. And uh, next time we get uh, Robin on the podcast, uh, uh, he's a Brussels insider. So we should uh, we should ask him about it and uh, what he thinks. But I think there are there are quite a few actually interesting uh, projects like this uh, around Brussels. They also have this uh, uh, School 19, I think it's called, uh, where I went to as a part of a press tour uh, earlier this year. So I think they're doing a, in general a pretty, uh, pretty good job. Now, this is time for us to wrap it up. Uh, that's it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. And if you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today and sharing the great stories. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andre. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.